welcome Sir Jerry to the show, Keyhole Conversations. I want to thank you very much for coming on and taking the time to come out here and talk with me. And I also want to congratulate you because you just became a shiny new CDL holder and you're going to be on your way to driving a school bus. How do you feel about that? I feel uh, feels great. feels awesome, man. Um, had, had great trainers and it's good to have it done. Looking forward to getting on the road. Yeah, man. You were a really great trainee. Um, the, the one thing I love about my job is I get to take people who have never driven like school buses and things before and really um, lift them up and see them progress from knowing nothing during the headlights look to mm -hmm. being able to just handle the vehicle on their own. But I also get a really nice thing with my job is I'm stuck in that vehicle with you for six to eight hours a day. So I get to figure out about very interesting people. And I found you to be a very interesting individual because you have, you have quite the background um, from your career. You were a Salt Lake City firefighter for 20 years? 20 years, yep. 20 years. What did you do before that? Uh, well, I went to uh, high school, graduated from high school, and I always wanted to be a firefighter ever since I was four or five. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a show back in the 70s called Emergency. I remember watching that with my mom. <laughs> It was about two uh, Los Angeles County paramedics, Johnny Gage, Ron, uh, Roy DeSoto, and I watched that every Friday. And I can't remember who came first, Emergency or my Uncle Andy. Um, he got hired by Salt Lake City Fire Department in 1969, and I always wanted to be a firefighter like he was. He was actually in the very first paramedic class in Utah in 1974. Really? Yeah, they sent, um, prior, prior to that, there was really no emergency medical services system. But there were several fire departments around the nation, um, Southern California fire departments, and I believe uh, Metro-Dade Fire Rescue in Florida who were being progressive and found a need for an emergency medical services system. So um, they sent uh, nine Salt Lake City firefighters, nine Salt Lake County firefighters to Southern California in January of 1974 to train um, do their didactic training at uh, one of the hospitals down there. Then they rode with um, Los Angeles County Fire Departments, Los Angeles Area Fire Departments for their training, came back here, opened up the first paramedic rescue. There were two, uh, one in Salt Lake City, one in Salt Lake County in, uh, I think, July 1st of 1974. And so I always looked up to him. He was a pioneer of the EMS system. Everything we have today, you can uh, go back and thank those, uh, those 18 firefighters that came back. Because when they came back, um, the nurses and doctors didn't know what a paramedic was. Really? So they had to come back here and train the nurses and doctors to allow them to do the skills that they were trained to do. Oh, yeah, exactly. Because they're probably just used to like the first responders being trained in first aid and things of that nature. Well, back then, um, the police department had uh, uh, suburban or like a station wagon, that mm -hmm. was the ambulance. And if there was a medical call, like a traffic accident or something, they would just put them in the back of the ambulance. <laughs> take them up to the ER and they usually the patients usually died before they reached the ER. Yeah, that, well, there was no training. Cuz you were just an ambulance driver. Yeah. You were nothing yep. more no no nothing more than a layman person basically. Exactly. Wow. I kind of have something in common <clears throat> with you there then too because my grandfather was not uh, the first paramedic in Utah, but he was part of the first EMT class of Utah. Oh. So that was pretty interesting. I remember seeing he had like a, a picture of him and all the graduating class, like, ooh, the first EMTs of Utah <laughs> back in the day. So that's that's really cool. And it, it was a new thing for the fire departments because back then the firefighters were just firefighters. They didn't respond to medical calls. So it was, it was really um, a work in progress to come back and get the fire chiefs, the battalion chiefs, the firefighters on board that this is going to be something we're going to be doing. And in order for us to uh, save our careers, um, because fires were starting to go down with all of the advent of the um, uh, building codes, fire codes, there weren't a lot of fires. So, and, and the fire stations were strate strategically placed mm -hmm. to in the community to be the best um, response for these things so it was kind of a work in progress for for these guys to come back and show the firefighters this is 
the future of fire service. Yeah, because nowadays, uh, most of your fire departments in Salt Lake County and Utah in general, you're responding to by far more medical calls than you ever are responding to Correct. fire calls, right? Probably 85, 90% of the medical call or calls you go on are, are medical calls. Wow. Yeah, I, I just seen in Salt Lake, they just recently today had like a four alarm fire yeah, down there in Sugar, Sugar House. House. <laughs> that looks like a big ripping one down there that's uh, taken up a lot of their time and resources. So you'd say, Coming out of high school, your influences were those TV shows and your uncle, uncle right? Andy, yep. That really got you into wanting to pursue the fire service. Did you go right into the fire service at 18? No. So my parents didn't want me to be a firefighter. They Back then, firefighters didn't make a lot of money. My uncle um, had part-time jobs just to you know make ends meet. So they were kind of uh, steering me to, towards college. So I went to... Uh, a quarter at Snow College, a quarter at University of Utah, and I finally decided this is not what I want to do. I want to be a firefighter. So um, I don't know if you know, fire, fire departments, fire departments test every two years. They have a civil service test every two years. So that was 1988. So I was in an off year to test for the fire department. So I ended up taking my EMT class from EMEDCO in uh, March of 88, got my um, EMT in June of 88, and then the next step was to try and get hired by Gold Cross Ambulance. That was... Um, that was like the, the premier ambulance. The, yeah, they were right? the premier ambulance. They were really the only ambulance provider in the Valley. Um, so I submitted my application, and I literally called them every week until I got hired. I finally got hired in December of 88. Did they just hire you to stop you from calling? Well, they, they had... They, they have so many app. They had so many applications back then. Oh that yeah. If you weren't calling and calling and calling, you weren't going to get hired. Kind of fall through the cracks. Yeah. So I ended up getting hired by Gold Cross Ambulance in 1988. Um, worked there uh, from December 88 to 19 December of 1989. Tested with Salt Lake City Fire Department in, I believe it was October of 1989, and then got hired. Ended up number two on the list. Wow, that's high. Six thousand people. Yeah, man, that is amazing. Um, and then got hired January 2nd of 1990. Would you attribute getting so high on the list to just studying your butt off exactly. to get up there? Because you really wanted it. Because uh. back then they gave you a book to study. And it was, uh, I think there were 10 chapters. And it was all fire-related stuff. Hose, ladders, fire behavior stuff. So if you wanted the job, um, you would just study that book. I remember making flashcards. That's all I did for 30 days is eat, sleep, and breathe that book. I can, I can kind of see that because you, you were kind of that way in the bus training as well. You were really on top of it and really studying, not just doing the nonchalant, let's get through this. You actually, mm -hmm. I could see that you wanted to do this and do it the right way. So that's awesome. So you get hired in 89 and... 1990. 1990. January 2nd, 1990. So you were hired before I was even born. <laughs> <laughs> I came around April of 90. So um, they put I you... I was just getting out of recruit class. Were then. you? So how was how was the recruit class back then? Is It, it was it was fun. It was intense. You know, they... Uh, um, good, good lieutenants had three lieutenants and you had a point system. And if you got too many points, then you would fail out of the class. So you're, they taught you the evolutions. Um, and then you would go out and train on the evolution. So it was, it was pretty intense, you know, a lot of, uh, pressure cause you didn't want to, this was your dream job. Oh yeah. And here I am 20 years old, finally hired by the department I always wanted to work for. And again, just used my the skills I learned testing and studying in high school and just put my nose to the grind. And, and what I was the youngest in the class. Were you? Yeah. Wow. Did you have anyone fail out of your class or did everyone make we it? We did. You had one? We had one person. It seems like there's always one or two that drop out. Yeah. I, I went through a self-sponsored academy back in 20, 2012, 2013, right around there. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was, we had our class was quite large. We had like 25 people, I believe, in our class and three failed out. Okay. But they didn't, you're paying for that academy where you're not hired. So mm -hmm. failing out of that was pretty, I mean, you had to screw up. And most of the people just left because they, one guy realized when he got up on the ladder that he was scared of heights. And <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you came into this not knowing about, you know, what you're going to be, be getting into. Yeah. Uh, and then two others, they just couldn't do the PT stuff that they had us doing. Because I'm, I'm, 
imagining PT was a huge thing in your academy that you were just running a lot, up downs, all that crazy stuff. We didn't do a lot of PT. Really? Um, back then, you, you, the academies didn't have that. They've started to add that. I think in the middle '90s, they started putting those in. It was just real intense on you know the evolutions, and I think we tested once a week. Um, it was pretty fun though. But speaking of heights, we we had to do this thing called it's the center of the room raise. And we took a bang, a 55-foot banger ladder in the training tower. Um, and I don't know if you know what a banger ladder is. It's a four-section ladder, and there's two poles um, attached to it. And then we, we secured two ropes um, to the top of it. So you had six people holding this ladder up straight up in the air. Oh, God. You had to climb up and over it 55 feet in the air. <laughs> Did you have any uh, like harness on or no? Any? Oh my nothing. god! <laughs> so you fall, you're falling. Oh yeah, 55. you're falling 55 feet. <laughs> I, re- I don't I, think they do that anymore. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, we didn't have any harnesses or anything either, though. In our academy, we didn't do no 55 feet. I remember we had this little fire tower that we had to throw ladders on, and I remember we threw one ladder, and then you'd have to shoulder the next ladder to get it up that roof pitch yeah, ladder. The roof, yeah, the. Um, Roof ladder, remember that one? Yeah, and that's when that guy figured out he was afraid of heights, and I'm footing the ladder for him, and he's going up there, and all of a sudden, he just starts, like, the ladder is like... Really? And I'm sitting here like, dude, you must be afraid of heights, and, like, (laughs) it would not stop. It just got worse and worse, and one of the... uh, one of the instructors comes over and yells at up at him, Lopez, what the hell are you doing? He's just frozen up there. Frozen. <laughs> he didn't come back the next day. <laughs> so that that's interesting. So you get what when did you actually graduate your academy? Was it like three months? Uh, the academy was twelve weeks long. And then I had to do some EMT because I was already EMT, but I had to do get some um, research hours. Mm-hmm. So I think I spent two weeks um, getting research hours. So I finally got out into combat in probably April. What was the first station you went to? Station 13, C platoon up on Parley's Way. It was the old station 13. It was an old gas station. A gas station yeah. retrofitted to be a fire yep. station? Wow. That's ironic. I I still remember the very first day walking into that fire station with my brand new turnout gear, the smell of the apparatus bay, the smell of fire, the smell of smoke on the turnout clothes. I remember um, taking uh, the gear off because you usually go and you replace, you know, one of the firefighters that was there the previous shift. You take his gear, his or her gear off the engine, go hang it up. And I just remember, you know, here's this old firefighters helmets all all dirty and his coats all dirty and and here's my, your stuff mine's all shiny and <laughs> <laughs> fresh <laughs> who was your first uh, captain do you remember him uh captain tom wall is he still around or did he pass he, away? uh he's still alive he he retired um i think he spent had 33 34 years on the job gotcha so he was uh, a great captain your first day at work as an official proby firefighter, did they harass you at all? Did you go through any hazing um, or anything like that? Not really. That station only had uh, a captain, an engineer, and two firefighters. So that, there were only four of us. Mm-hmm. And it was an older crew, so um, none of that went on there. Uh, gotcha. But you, but Captain Wall, he was, a, he was a stickler. If you didn't have the flag taken down at night, raised in the morning... Um, all the reports entered, the engine checked and washed. I mean, he was, it was good because he taught you how to be a good boot. Yeah. So that when you went to the next station, you were, you were, because you, you're really a boot for like a year. A year, yeah. You're, you have to answer the phone. You have to change a continuous towel. I mean, you're there to greet the visitors. And if one of the senior guys has to answer the phone, you get yelled at, hey, boot, get that phone. <laughs> <laughs> what was your very first call you went on? Um, it was probably a medical call or a, a false fire alarm. Do you remember your first fire? I do. What was your first fire? That was when I went. So I spent three months at Station 13 and then got um, transferred to Station 1, the old Station 1 at 159 East 100 South. It's not there anymore. There's a Harmons. But that was a cool station because it was their headquarters. Um, and so you had... Not when I went there, but dispatch used to be there. All of the administration was there, the fire chiefs. It was a big, huge station um, with fire poles. I mean, it's the it's the 
typical big city fire station that you expect four bay doors that you see on those shows like chicago fire yeah. and things like yeah. that backdraft mm -hmm. gotcha there was engine one truck one battalion one and uh, light truck one so that was the second station so that's where like all the hazing started that's where you got called I mean, can we swear on this? Yeah, yeah. You got motherfucking boot, miserable fucking boot. That's what you were called. <laughs> I mean, literally. <laughs> no, um, yeah. And so my first uh, engine, and if there was any kind of fire, any kind of incident in the city, engine one was there. So it was, and you, you, and you were usually like a sure to go. So you'd put your turnout gear in the middle of the engine and the truck, and whoever went out, you you went out. But back then, ladder trucks didn't have any medical on their on their um, apparatus. They were just strictly fire response. Gotcha. Um, and so my first fire was was like 200 South State, an old abandoned building. I remember pulling the nozzle back there. You know, you're excited because you're the nozzle person. And I remember uh, one of the fi female firefighters. Um, she's like pushing me in. Come on, get in there. Get in there, boot. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure as soon as those tones dropped and they started kind of dispatching it as like an active fire, your adrenaline probably went through the roof, right? Well, back then you got excited over anything. Oh, yeah. Any, any little any, tone. Anything that came on. But, <laughs> but, but you used to key into like the dispatcher's tone of voice. Um, they used to give you like a heads up. Like if, if, they, if you got sent on a report of a structure fire with flame showing, you knew you had a fire. Yeah. But if they would just say, you know, report of a structure fire, I mean, the dispatchers kind of knew how to set the tone for the guys. Gotcha. Yeah, because nowadays it's all automated dispatch. Yeah, it's, like all, it's all like a Siri type thing. Mm -hmm. so you don't get that, um, that human element, which I think is really important, you know. I mean, you should hurry on every call. Yeah. But you go on so many calls and... If they can give you some kind of heads up, you know, like like I say, a report of a structure fire, multiple calls, flame showing, you know, got something. Yeah, no kidding. So how long did you stay as a firefighter, per se, in the realm of that was your primary job before you moved on to another job in the fire district? Because um, wasn't you went from firefighter to captain? To hazmat. To hazmat. So, oh. so two years later, you could I tested for hazmat, hazmat tech, hazardous materials technician. Mm -hmm. So I got promoted to ha hazmat tech and went to station six. That's where the hazmat team used to be. So uh, did you have to go? Was that Hazwopper school or whatever that's called? Um, it was it was another I think it was a three month school. You had to learn the you know, the chemicals, the um, what was that thing? The chemical compound, the you know, has all the elements. You had to learn all that. Oh, yeah. Um, that little are you talking about that little book? Well, you know the thing that has all the chemicals and it has the chemical names. I can't remember what that is. I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So you had to learn about all the chemicals. You had to learn um, how to put on the um, confined space or the uh, the level A suit. Oh, those are a pain in the ass. Oh, there. Yeah. And if you have any kind of fear of claustrophobia, of claustrophobia that's where that's mine. It. So in the fire <laughs> academy, we we didn't go through uh, the three month ours was just the ops and awareness the little two-week course but they made us get in one of those class a suits mm -hmm. where you're in your scba and then you're encapsulated in this like marshmallow suit that was terrifying yeah. like to me i was like if i run out of oxygen am i gonna have time to get out of this you and can't get out of it someone <laughs> yeah has someone get has to get you out because you don't want to rip your suit off mm -hmm. you know if you've got um chemicals or contaminants on your suit you rip that off you're going to get exposed you have to go through some kind of uh, decontamination. De yeah. So you, you went to school for that and then you got stationed with a hazardous material team at station six. We had engine six and hazmat six. So there were eight, eight firefighter EMT hazmat technicians there. Do you remember your first hazmat call? Um, we got a lot of like uh, smell of natural gas calls. So you things of that nature meters. Um, yeah, I think it was uh, it was probably a fuel spill, a lot of fuel spills. Yeah, Basically, a lot of that with stuff. Diesel tanks get ripped on a call, you know, on a on a uh, vehicle accident, and you've got diesel fuel all over the road. So you're going out there throwing kitty leader and con containing it and stuff like that. Stuff like that. But did you did you ever have any like anthrax or anything during that? We did. Olympic we had area? a lot of those. That was the anthrax era where people were you know sending fake letters and stuff so i remember we responded on tons of those oh i bet tons and tons and back then you had a lot of meth labs too oh yeah so we would have to go that. we'd have to go and um, before the the uh 
um, people that were arrested could go to jail, we had to go and disinfect them. So I remember middle of the night going on tons and tons of those. Oh, God. So you had to do the whole decon on them themselves. And back then, a lot of cops, I think, were getting like exposed to that stuff and dying of cancers and things from those meth labs. Because they didn't know how dangerous those labs were going in, Mm -hmm. you know, and they would shut it down. It's the, if I remember, it was, if the, if the lab was in the middle of a cook, you didn't want to shut it down. That was like the worst time to shut the lab down. Yeah. So you, that would have been like 94 when you're doing hazardous materials? Yeah, it was a hazmat tech from like 92 till I got promoted to captain in 2001. 2001? So you got promoted to captain right at the height of the Olympics, right? Just before the Olympics. Wow. How was that being a firefighter in the Salt Lake City Fire Department during the Salt Lake City Olympics? I mean, the Utah Olympics, but that's where most of your heyday stuff was going. I remember... Didn't uh, Bush go there like for some ceremony and a bunch of other mm-hmm. stuff? I mean, you guys was, are probably was right after 9-11, too. So it yeah. was a heightened alert for terrorist activities. And then we had the Olympics coming in. So it was it was pretty intense. The what was the Olympics? Two weeks. Yeah. Pretty intense. Two weeks. It uh, was there was a lot going on there. Yeah. I can only imagine. And the population pretty much doubled, like yeah. all the hotels, motels, everything filled up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you probably did. You have to deal with a lot of like FEMA stuff and things of that nature. Yeah, there was a lot of FEMA training just to get us prepared, and all the venues, um, a lot of security there. There were, they had uh, <clears throat> sanitized engines. There was one at Station Two, and I think one at Station Ten. And sanitized meaning the Secret Service and them went in and actually swept that engine for bombs and stuff. So oh, that really? Was the only engine that could respond into like the metals plaza wow so it was pretty it was that's yeah that's it that's in depth I, I wouldn't even have thought about that like making sure the emergency response vehicles didn't have bombs and things on them so crazy yeah it was pretty pretty intense two weeks was <laughs> it strange going from a firefighter to becoming a captain like what made you make that jump were you just hey i'm ready to take charge and lead some people yeah, it's kind of a, a natural progression. Um, it's great to be a captain because you can decide what you're going to do that day. You can decide if you're going to train. You can decide if you're going to have a down day, you know, things like that. So, And I had a, a good friend on the job that promoted to captain, so he was kind of pushing me to pushing do it. You. And he helped prepare me for it. If it wasn't for him, you know, I would it would have been a lot more difficult test by number one on that test. So. Oh, really? Yeah. What was the process of doing a, a captain's test? You had to take a written test and then you did uh, an assessment day. So you would go into, they, they took us to the old PSB at uh, what, 200 South and 3rd East, um, put us in a room and you had to write like letters. You get, They gave you like a stack of reports, stack of different memos and stuff. And you had to like prioritize them A, B, C. And then there were certain letters you had to write, write a letter to the chief because, you know, someone wrecked an engine or a citizen came in to complain. So you had to write a letter to the citizen. Um, We had, I think, two or three uh, personnel matters. So where you go into a room and you had, you know, someone getting harassed, one of the crew members getting harassed. And then you had um, different role plays you had to do. Oh, gotcha. So like you you had a and then you had a, a, a tactical. So they simulated a fire. And you had to, you know, make an arrival report, call all your resources. So it was a pretty intense process. Wow. And you scored number one. That's, number one. That's awesome. Um, so going from that firefighter to that captain, did that take, um, was that a big awareness jump of being like, hey, I'm in charge of these people now. Now I have to hold myself to even higher of a standard and things of that nature. Yeah, or was exactly. it kind of natural for you? You kind of... Uh, your first few months out of the gates as a captain kind of sets the tone of how you're going to be as a captain. Mm-hmm. Either you're going to, you know, be really laid back and not do anything, or, you know, you're going to be, you know, what like a policy Nazi. You would kind of want to be somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um, you don't want to be known as the lazy captain that lets everyone get away with everything, but you also don't want to be the captain no one wants to work yeah, for, right? Exactly. <laughs> but there are certain policies that you have to you have to follow because it's your neck on the line if something something goes wrong. Oh, yeah, it's that CYA, right? Yeah, but I think uh, I, I learned a lot from when I was uh, 
young on the job and listened to senior firefighters, they were say, you know, don't ever forget where you came from. Oh yeah. You know, I think if you, if you remember that and you just realize these, uh, guys and gals, they know their job. You don't have to micromanage them. Just give them the tools and resources they need to do their job and they will do anything for you. So, um, becoming a captain and having your own crew, what, uh, station were you a captain at? I uh, started out on uh, B platoon and I was just what's called a swing captain. Mm-hmm. So they've got, we had 12 stations and each station ha- either had one or two captains if it was a dual company house or single company house. And then there were, I think, two or three swing captains. So when a captain was off at a station, they would swing you into that station to be in charge. And that was good because you get to work with different crews, maybe some stations you didn't get to spend a lot of time at. Since I was a firefighter, EMT, I didn't get to work on a lot of paramedic rescue engines. Gotcha. So that was fun to be able to swing into those stations and kind of see what the paramedics um, had to do. You know, it's a different role they have. They've got to restock drugs and there's controlled substances on their rigs. And um, so I spent, um, I think, six months as a swing captain on B platoon. And then I actually bid the airport station, station 12. Oh, really? I was on red one there. And I spent, uh, I think, a year there and then went to Station 4 C Platoon, and that's where I finished my career. It was down at Station 4. Where's mm-hmm. that located at? It's uh, in the avenues about 10th East and 11th Avenue. Is that up by that cemetery? Yeah, it's just right above the Salt Lake City Center. Okay, yeah, I know that fire station. Yeah, it's, and, and when I went there, prior to that, it was an EMT engine, and they, they wanted to add another paramedic rescue engine to the city, so they made Engine 4 a paramedic rescue engine. So it was... It's pretty cool to be able to be on a rescue engine because you're busier. There's more calls you get to go on. Yeah, I can I can imagine because now you have that that one more set of skills in your firehouse that can be utilized throughout the city. Yeah. Um, you and I talked briefly yeah. about this with you, but you were one of the first responding uh, engine companies or medic companies that went to the Trolley Square shooting, which if people don't know about that, that was a shooting in, what year was that? 2007? 2007. Around Valentine's Day. Yeah, of in the area of Trolley Square is like a big shopping complex, and we had a mass shooting there. You were one of the first responding units right correct to that how was that day how did how did that because i would guess that that would be one of those events that would kind of change your whole life and affect you yeah exactly so i remember that night i think it was the monday before valentine's day i can't remember the exact date but i think monday was or valentine's day was like thursday or friday it was monday before valentine's day everyone's out shopping doing their valentine shopping and we had just got done eating dinner. I think it was about 6, 6.30 in the evening. Dishes are done. We're sitting around at the kitchen table watching the news or watching, you know, entertainment at tonight or something. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we hear a dispatch come over the speakers, a report of a shooting at Trolley Square, uh, truck five, medic engine two, respond. And so anytime something like that comes in, the guys are going to go they want to hear what's going on. Oh yeah. So I went. I went to the apparatus bay, got a handheld in, uh, radio from the engine, and went back and took it to the kitchen table just so we could hear what was going on. And all I remember is every time dispatch would key the mic, you would just hear phone call after phone call after phone call, just bling 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 bling, like all mayhem was breaking was breaking loose there. And they told. Um, truck five and medic engine two to respond to the hard rock cafe because the first two people that were shot was a father and son on the west parking lot the father was killed the 16 year old son ran into hard rock cafe so that's where the first two two responding units went and then the shooter went into trolley square and that's where he did most of his um his uh damage gotcha so we're listening to this radio trying to find out what's going on and as you can imagine, everyone's calling on their cell phones. Dispatch didn't really have any idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think it was maybe five minutes into the incident, and I remember uh, a police officer coming over the fire radio because we used to be able to, to talk to them. We had, we had access to their channels. We, they had access to ours. I remember a police officer came over the fire radio, and he said, 
Uh, fire this is Bravo 102. We got multiple victims, multiple fatalities. We need multiple rescues. And I said to my guys, let's go. Yeah. He's got the engine, went in rat, said fire, medic engine four is route trolley square. So we were the first ones to actually get inside. Inside the, the trolley building. square building. <clears throat> I remember pulling up. Um, Battalion one was there, battalion chief. And a Gold Cross ambulance arrived with us. And he said, they think there's a multi another shooter inside. Are you guys willing to go in? We said, hell yeah, let's get in there. And so I remember walking in there with a SWAT team around us. There were cops all over in that building, up the second level, you know, looking for this other shooter. But we didn't care. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we knew there were people inside that needed help, and we were going to get in there whether we got killed or not. Yeah. So I remember walking through the, the north doors, glass blown out. It was like, wow, this is surreal. You know, you don't really know what, what to expect, what you're going to see. You know, you just kind of put on your, your, uh, your uh, work, you know, you're you just know, going. You're yeah, just, you're putting on your work gear, you're doing exactly. your job, the job that you're paid to do, and go yeah. get out there in it. Yeah, I can't <clears> even <throat> imagine what would be going through my mind responding to a call like that. Like, is, there, is the shooter still active? What's going on? Like you said, you showed up and they're like, you know, there might be a second shooter and you guys were willing to go in. That's that's a scary situation, but you're probably so keyed in on, hey, this is what we do. Let's mm -hmm. go get it done, get the job done. And you kind of have to have that that attitude as a firefighter. You know, you could get killed in a fire. You could get, could get killed responding. You could get killed in something like this. You just don't even think about that because that's the oath you swore to protect life and property. And if it takes your life, it takes your life, you know. Yeah, exactly. Do you remember the victim that you and your um, fellow crew uh, attended to? Like, did you guys pick one victim or was it like triage or? So we went in with uh, uh, myself, my engineer, and my two firefighter paramedics and then uh, two Gold Cross EMTs. Mm -hmm. So we start walking into, into the building. The first person I saw was in the pottery barn and that was the shooter. And he was laying... Um, Face up with zip ties. His hands were zip tied. There was a big SWAT guy with an AR-15 standing above him. I said, is he dead? And he said, yep, he's dead. Wow. We didn't even touch him. My two paramedics went down uh, to the right in front of uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, and there was a victim that was deceased there. And then we went into the pottery barn, and that's where most of the people that were shot, and that's where the two victims were that we were able to rescue were in. They were in, in the pottery barn. In the pottery uh, cabin fever. Sorry, cabin okay. fever. Oh, I, I know that story. The little, it's like a knickknack store yeah, kind of, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So you pass two deceased individuals, a shooter, another individual, and then you actually get to the people you can help. And you guys just, your guys go to work and you as a captain start, What what's your role in a situation like that? Uh, my role is just scene safety, making sure that um, the scene's safe, uh, that the Guys have everything they need, um, calling for resources. I think by the time we got into the cabin fever, I think rescue medic engine eight um, got in there. So we ha actually had two crews in there now. My crew took um, the male victim and they took the female victim. Did I they both survive? They did. Oh, good. So there were uh, three people that were killed in cabin fever and we were able to rescue two people. Two and I think they both... I think we both took the victims to uh, University Hospital. Gotcha. So after going through a situation like that, uh, mass shooting, was there a debrief for you guys back then? Like a kind of, hey, how are you feeling about this? Like I know nowadays they're kind of trying to push that more with the um, acknowledgement of PTSD and things of that nature. But did you guys have anything like that or did you just go back to the station? We didn't. We didn't really have anything. Um, I brought it up to one of the battalion chiefs that was there, one of the medical uh, battalion chiefs, because I remember like 30 minutes after this incident had ended, you know, the victims were out on their way to the hospital. I remember standing out in front of there and families coming out, fathers and, or, uh, fathers and mothers and kids, and they were just crying because these kids had, and families had been locked up in a closet or something they didn't know what was going on they were afraid for their lives and i just remember those kids coming out just crying and i thought there's going to be a lot of uh people that need help 
in this. And so I mentioned that to one of the battalion chiefs. I said, there's a lot of guys that are going to need help. Mm -hmm. And I think to their credit now, they're starting to realize that PTSD is there and, and people need help, but we really didn't have much of it. There much really of wasn't ever resource. any kind of debriefings or anything. Did I, remember, that? I remember we did like a debriefing um, out in the street, but that's not the place you want to do a debrief. Oh, no, <laughs> exactly. Um, did that scenario or has there been a major scenario in your fire service career that really affected you and got you thinking about, you know, in deep, dark areas or like, God, what does this world come to? Um, yeah, there's been quite a few incidents that, that you remember that you never forget. Yeah. The only thing really that bothered me about Trolley Square um, is that we didn't get, e get any acknowledgement from our department of what we did. Really? And we're not the kind of... Firefighters don't need a lot of uh, accolades. Mm -hmm. We just do our job quietly, and, you know, that's just what we do. Yeah. But I remember... Um, police chief was in the news every single day for like a week or two weeks praising his his, his police officer what they did all i wanted was someone from the department to come up to my station and say how are you guys doing nobody did that and that's really bothered me yeah i can imagine it took, like, it took longer for me to probably recover from that just because they didn't know what we saw mm -hmm. you know we saw people that were out shopping for valentine's day one minute the next minute they're they're killed yeah their lives over you know yeah I, I can only imagine having to go through something like that and like you said it's i think it's i think they are making strides in the right direction for first responders they've they've been doing it in the military side i believe mm -hmm. for longer than first responders but i think they're starting to realize that hey police officers emts paramedics firefighters they're suffering some of that same stuff it's just here at home every day yeah i mean you're you're <clears throat> truly responding to some of the worst times in people's lives and i don't see how that doesn't affect you as a person and so it's 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 shitty to hear that you didn't get that recognition or get someone stopping by saying how are you guys but i I hope that they're making strides in that. It seems like they are, but it's only been like what the past decade, maybe that they probably actually been doing that. Because you're starting to see more first responders um, commit suicide. Yeah, committing. We didn't suicide. have that really back when I was on the job. Mm -hmm. Not to say that people weren't having issues. Yeah, but you just kept it bottled up, you know, because it's it's weird. You go on a call like that. And the minute you go up and pick your paramedics up and get your all your gear put back on the engine, you say fire medic engine four is available. You have to shut that light off and get ready to respond to the next thing. Yeah. So you end up learning how to compartmentalize all this stuff. It's still there in your mind, but you've just put it in a place where you don't think about it, but it's there. Yeah. You have to be ready to go to the next. It's not like we could go home and, you know, recover you're you still have a shift to finish yeah i didn't even think about that you went from a mass shooting and then your next call could have been anything from like just a broken leg or something you got to go attend to that emergency mm -hmm. so that's one of the hard things about the fire service is you know you're working 24 48 hours and you have to be able to deal with all this stuff you, you know they can't send the guys home every time they go on something bad every time every time there's a death you you know yeah you have to just deal with it. and that's and that's kind of what, I guess, the mindset you have. You know, we're going to be the tough guys. We have to be the rock for these people. Yeah, you don't think about, you know? like, when police officers have a critical incident, most of those officers involved in that, to my understanding, they get their off shift now, and they go deal with debriefing and all that stuff. You don't do that in the fire service because then you're taking that whole apparatus out where yeah. police have more, quote-unquote, resources units available to them you can't really do that with the fire service yeah you can't you you got to finish your shift out and and then you can hopefully go get help <laughs> <laughs> yeah but know. you know we're we're the type of uh people that we we don't seek help which i think sometimes can be our downfall because we're we all deal with this stuff mm -hmm. and uh you just have to acknowledge that you know you're not there's nothing wrong with you 
because you're having issues. We're just human beings like everybody else. How many more years did you put in the fire service after that trolley square incident? Uh, three more years. And then retired in 2010. Wow. But I remember, I remember like inside cabin fever and I remember just looking around at everything and I thought I'm getting the hell out of this thing at 20 years. It, was that one of those pivotal moments for you that you decided, hey, you know what, I'm actually going to make this that running career, but then I'm going to stop it at that 20 years. Was that one of those moments? Yeah. I mean, I I always kind of wanted to retire at 20, but after seeing that, I thought I'm going to get out and do something different just because, you know. Yeah. You don't need to see this stuff your whole life. Exactly. And I want to applaud you for that because there are a lot of people in the public safety um, world, because I've dabbled in it here and there with different jobs and things that I've talked to, and they go 40 years, some of them, on career, or 30 years, 35 years, and they never experience anything but that public safety life, whereas you... Mm-hmm did a full 20 year service and then you went out and started a whole nother chapter of your life. Like what did you do after the fire service? Um, so my kids were still, were still in school. So I, I pretty much stayed home for, I think the first two or three years and just drove carpool and, you know, made lunches and (laughs) (laughs) so you went from captain running these fire engines around the city, crazy life to be in the at home dad. Stay at home dad. Yeah. Dude, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went on to be a umpire, baseball umpire. Went to professional umpire school in in uh, January of 2012, 2012 or 2013, and that's a month long um, school in Florida every January. Wow, that's so, awesome. So even though I was I was too old to get picked up by um, the MLB scouts, <laughs> I wanted to get the very best training that an umpire could get. Oh yeah. And so I came back and umpired high school, some junior college ball, did some uh, state uh, finals, and then uh, worked for Delta Airlines for uh, six and a half years as a baggage handler. What made you go do that? Just for the flight benefits. Really? Yeah. You wanted to fly around for wanted free? To fly for free. There you go. And that was a fun job. Oh, I bet. Real I, fun job. There's, I mean, there's so many careers out there that you can find that are actually pretty fun and enjoyable. I feel bad for people who get stuck in an office and they're in a cubicle answering a phone all day because there's so many other options out there. And Well, uh, that's the great thing about our retirement is I wouldn't have been able to do those jobs if, if I didn't have a retirement. Yeah, you got a pension, so, right? Yeah, and so it allowed me to do things that I normally wouldn't be able to do. Yeah. So, so in that aspect, the fire service sets you up for your future adventures and exploration in life. Exactly. Was it hard to turn that off? I mean, your last day, was it, it I would imagine, cause I've seen like some YouTube videos and things of like police officers who sign off for their very last time, um, on their squad duties or whatever for you, was it tough to leave that last day? Um, yeah. I remember um, my last day. So we, during the first 19 and a half years of my career, we did a regular 24 on, 24 off schedule. So we'd work one on, one off, one on, one off, one on, four off. And then six months prior to me leaving, we went to a 4896. So we did two, two days on, four days off, two days on, four days off. So I had written a letter to the chief and said um, that my retirement date was going to be uh, January 15th. Um, but my shift was a, f- uh, 14 and 15 shift. I had the first shift off. And so I came in for the second, uh, uh, 40, second 24. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't going to have a retirement party. I was just going to, you know, go out quietly. And then I got to the station and, and my engineer, um, said, Hey, you sure you don't want to party? And I thought, you know what? Yeah, let's do one. Yeah. So we, so we ended up calling the chief and saying, we're going to do a party, you know, schedule the crews to come up to the station. We went to Costco, bought all the food. And it was fun because you want to see all the guys one mm-hmm. last time before before you leave. Wow. Do you still talk with your uh, former colleagues? Yeah, I still I go up to the stations, visit, you know, stay in contact with them. That's cool. Um, and that's really the only thing I miss is just the camaraderie, you know, the the practical joking the you know ball busting at the kitchen table that, oh yeah that's the, that's the stuff that's fun 
Yeah, because you're you're basically living with those individuals. So yeah. you, I mean, that stuff is going to exist in that mm-hmm. environment. I, I can imagine that that would be very different going from that environment to uh, Delta Airlines, where you probably have a little of that out on the tarmac, throwing bags and stuff, but not to the extent. Not of, to the extent, yeah, because. At the fire station, the only boss you have there is the captain. Mm-hmm. You don't have, um, you know, anyone else there. So you could you can get away with a lot more stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, so you did, you worked at Delta Airlines for six years, you said? Six and a half years. And then after that, is that when you decided, hey, maybe I'll go drive a bus? Or no, you started working for a sporting. Yeah, so I, I took a year off um, during the COVID. So mm-hmm. I, I quit Delta in... March of 2020, and then got hired by Shields Sports in uh, March of 2021. And you work in firearms, yes. right? You sell Fire guns and stuff. Is that weird that you, because you got to see the results of a mass shooting, but you also sell guns. <laughs> yeah, kind it's that a, kind of a... What do they call that, a paradox? Yeah, <laughs> right? Um, and obviously, you're a firearms owner yourself. Correct. And But you've also seen the deadliness that these weapons can do in the wrong hands. Mm -hmm. Do you ever worry about like gun control taking over America? Like it has in like Canada, for instance, like they just outlawed handguns up in Canada now. Yeah, I saw that. Um, You know, I guess it's always a a possibility. Um, But I always go back to, you, you can't legislate away evil. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if it's a gun or a car or a knife or a bat you, people are going to find a way to do horrible things. Yeah, I was going to say, you've seen it all. You've seen people shot, but then you've, to that extent, and you've also seen people suffer from other injuries from, like you said, knives, bats, all that. Drunk but, drivers, yeah. yeah. You're, you're never going to legislate evil away. No. It's always going to be there. And you don't want to, you don't want to take away someone's ability to protect their life or, mm-hmm. or family. Yeah. So it's, you know, and, and I've got kids that are school teachers. So you worry about something like that happening in the schools. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a weird thing um, because firearms can be an enjoyable thing. They can also be a deadly thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's a, I just, I, I like put that connection together. I was like, this guy's selling guns and he's seen the <laughs> result. That's. That's that's interesting. But so like after Trolley Square, my daughter was I think she was 15 or 16. And I remember she used to always go to the malls every Saturday. And after that happened, I told her, you're never going to the malls again. But then I I realized you can't live your life in fear. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just sit in your house and worry about what's going to happen. You have to live your life and you never know when your last day is going to be. You just got to treat every day like it's your last and live life to the fullest yeah you know no kidding i mean really that's that it's a hammer on the head or the nail on the head with the hammer is every day you're out there i always tell people because i have a friend who is super afraid of flying in airplanes mm-hmm. but she drives a car <laughs> <I'm> yeah. like <laughs> one of the most you, deadly yeah, things that's you can do one of the most dangerous activities you do every day and you just think about it no nonchalantly because you're doing it every day could be the end of your life. Mm -hmm. Like I remember I got in a horrific car accident and you know, I look back on that and I'm like, how did I come out of that thing? And then before that I wasn't worried about anything or thinking, Oh, Hey, you know, this could happen, but it can life can be, you never know. Like you said, those, uh, those victims in trolley square, they were out doing Valentine's day shopping. They weren't planning on getting murdered that day by some, deranged screwed up individual whatever is going on in their mind wasn't that was a younger individual that did that shooting yeah, i think he was 15 15 or 16 yeah it's it's sad what the lengths people will go to express their rage on society yeah but like you said it's not going to go away there there were uh an incident not too long ago in canada that i think i believe it was canada a knife attack or something there was one in las vegas like three weeks ago yeah Three or four weeks ago where a guy killed a bunch of people on the strip. Yeah. I always tell people, if you think you're ever going to make the world like sunshine and rainbows, you're wrong. There's always going to be evil that exists out Mm -hmm. there. And now... I remember taking one of my trips I I took when I was working for Delta. 
a, a big baseball fan, so mm -hmm. I wanted to try and see all the baseball stadiums. So I took a trip to Detroit, and I always like um, when I get to those cities just exploring. So I rented one of those electric scooters and just driving around the city, looking at all the sites. And I remember riding down the sidewalk, and there was a father and two sons. Sons must have been like 12, 13, 14 years old. And uh, I think the father asked me as I, as I was going by, he said, is that thing dangerous? And I said, everything in life that's fun is dangerous. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? You know? Yeah, it totally is. I mean, everything that it's going to create some sort of enjoyment, there's always a dangerous yeah. aspect to it. And like you say, you can't you can't live your life in fear and just, you know, shut yourself in a room. That's not a life. That's not living. You got to live every mm -hmm. day because you don't know when it's going to be your last. Yeah. Um, and I mean, now think about how many people die just getting out of bed. Yeah. You know, or go into bed and never exactly. get out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, I mean, there's, it's, I find it so interesting that it's every day we get up to live our lives. There's that show a thousand ways to die or whatever. And it's mm -hmm. so true. There's so many, we're so lucky that we're not dead by the end of the day with all the bacteria, viruses, you know, carcinogens, vehicles, crazy madmen with any sort of weapon, all that stuff that could get you. And you're blessed every day you get to go back home yeah. and get into bed. You know, especially in today's world, it's so maddening of everything that's going on with, you know, not only locally, but abroad in the world from, mm -hmm. you know, our local problems all the way to the big Ukraine, Russia thing that's going on where every day I'm like, are we going to get nuked? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I know a lot of people, I have a, another friend that she's always sending me like news articles about that stuff. And I'm like, you can't dive too much into that. But then at the same time, I'm always diving deep into conspiracy theories <laughs> and things. Well, I think that's one thing that, that working in the, the fire service, EMS service has taught me that the death is a reality and there's no way we're going to escape it. So I've kind of, and people might think this is kind of odd, but I've always, I've, I've just mentally prepared myself that everyone I know, all my loved ones, they're going to die. I just, I know that's going to happen. I don't know when, but I'm just prepared for it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like I'm hoping they're going to die, but I just know that is going to happen. I know that one day I could get a phone call and someone I love dearly is, is going to die. I've just, I guess that's how I'm preparing myself for these things to happen. Yeah. Like I say, some people might think that's weird, but I've just seen reality. No, you had said something very interesting to me last week that really clicked. You said, there's one thing I figured out in life and it's everything is temporary. Yeah. And it's exactly. so true from the people we know and love that in our lives to ourselves. We are temporary. We're on temporary. This, this is a, this isn't a permanent, um, uh, spot we're at, you know, no. this is a temporary it is. And that's, you know. that gets back to it, to why you got to live your life and, and experience all the things you want to do. What made you want to come drive a school bus out of all these things? <laughs> so you've been a firefighter, you've thrown bags for Delta, you've been, been an, an umpire, umpire <laughs> and now you're at 52? 53. 53, you're coming on to drive a school bus. Um, I don't know what, what made me decide to drive a school bus. I think I saw like all the news articles and the signs on the buses saying, we need help, we need help. And I just thought it'd be kind of fun. Yeah. I've always just, and that's like I, like I said before, the, one of the great things about the pension is you can do all these different things that you wouldn't be able to do. Um, and my daughter um, is a track coach. And so I think it'd be kind of fun to be able to drive her track team and you know, it just, and getting in the bus, it's like driving a fire engine, but you don't go 1039 <laughs> blowing through intersections. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the defensive driving aspect's the same. I mean, you want to be aware of your situational surroundings and things, but yeah, we got lights red and yellow on the bus, but that doesn't permit us to, but the one cool thing is now you get to stop traffic yeah. or you hope they stop. I think you're going to- There is an air horn on there. Yeah, so that's fun. <laughs> Um, and then I think you're going to not only enjoy, like if you get to drive your daughter on a field trip, that would be awesome. But yeah, the kids themselves make the job, man. It's dude, well, some of them are so innocent in their mindsets and things. It's just, it's fun to see their outlooks on the world. And I like, I like being around kids. I, I'm, you probably have already found that out about me, but I'm a people person. I, I can, 
you know, we've talked about this before. We can start conversations with anybody, mm-hmm. no matter where we're at. So um, I like talking to people. I like just, you know, getting on a personal level with people. I like, I think I'm still a kid at heart. So I think I, I relate well to the kids. I know you you're know. still a kid at heart for some of the harassing you've done of your own <laughs> trainees in your group. <laughs> oh, I, I was a, a pot stir station, man. There was always a, a wet mop in front of the door. So when one of the guys would open the, the door, they'd get a soaking wet mop in their chest. Oh, dude, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, God, I had a train of thought and it just went out of my head. I was in there and now it's gone. Um, I was also a concert promoter. I don't know if I ever told you that. Oh, yeah. You did tell me that you did concert promoting. Yeah. You brought in... 2007. How was that? That was fun because I, I always like seeing behind the things stuff. Like when, I, when I'm out at a concert, I always kind of like to look in the back of the stage, you know, stage right, stage left, see what's going on. I like to get there early and see the guys setting up the lighting and, and uh, lighting trusses and stuff. And so it was really interesting to be able to put these shows together because the concert promoter, he finds the bands, he books the venue, he sets up the ticketing, he sets up the radio promotion. You do everything. And so it was really interesting to be behind the scenes and put this whole big production together, not at, at a level like Live Nation does, yeah. but at a smaller level, but it's the same exact process. There's another check mark in a box of things you've done. I get that a lot too. Um, whenever I'm out with these trainees, I'm like, yeah, I've driven a garbage truck. I've been an EMT. I worked for the health department. I worked at a graveyard. I've they're like, how many jobs have you done? I'm like, I just like in experiencing different things. I don't yeah. think life's short, man. I want to do a whole bunch of all. stuff. Well, right? there were three things I wanted to do growing up, either be a firefighter a rock star or a, a mortician. <laughs> I play the drums. So you've got to, you, so now you just got to go to, you got to go become a mortician. A, yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. And then, um, you, you mentioned that you're a people person and you can start a conversation with anyone. And I'm pretty much the same way. I love people. I love uh, conversing and engaging. The one thing I find is, it almost attracts even the ones I don't want to converse with too much to me. Uh-huh. Like, I don't know why, but my my girlfriend always says, it seems like anywhere you go, people look at you and say, I can go talk to that individual. <laughs> yeah, he's a captive audience. Yeah, right. And we both experienced that just getting off the bus the other day in a parking lot. We had a lady come up and talk to us about her question was, is, did we think her cat was in heaven or not? Yeah. You handled it way better than I was going to. <laughs> so I'm glad you took the lead on that role. But yeah, it's just, you know, and even it, even those interactions and things, they teach you something. They teach you about people. The, the thing I took away from that girl is she's going through a real rough time. And as much as I thought we were on the book of Eli looking for someone to jump us, <laughs> and you were too, you also listened to her, and I think that clicked. Uh-huh. Listening to people makes, because we all want someone to talk to, you yeah. know. Well, you never know what someone's going through. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just a hello. Maybe it's just a, you know, getting on a personal level, asking them how they're doing, what they're doing. Maybe that prevents them from, you know, doing something bad to themselves yeah something that people are going to regret that they did yeah you even were talking with the gas station attendant like you were almost recruiting her i made a joke i was like you're not going to be a bus driver for us you're going to be our recruiter i'm going to get you a nice suit and (laughs) you can go out and get us more drivers well if you think about people that work in gas stations and fast food they probably get a lot of people that are just mad and upset they probably don't ever get people to say hey how you doing how's your day yeah and that can just go a long ways with people you know Make them feel like, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a person. I'm not just a robot in this big cog machine. Yeah, we're all individuals with individual experiences, no matter what we're doing out there. And I think you're right. I think that's very important. But there is an art to ending a conversation. There is. There is an art. You have to know how, when this conversation is going too long, how you can uh, respect, respectfully end the conversation. <laughs> I've been in plenty of conversations with people that are just going on and on and on. You have to know how to end it, end it. in a tactful <laughs> yeah, way. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is at, at the fire at the fire station. There was always, you know, other guys. You could say, "Hey, come over here," and you would get <laughs> you would like tag team 
you know, get someone else to to, to take on the you leave. <laughs> yeah, we have a couple of coworkers that are kind of like that. I got one that I eventually have to I have to hope someone else comes into the conversation in the hallway so I can sneak away slowly. Yeah. <laughs> but on that on that note, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show and having this conversation with me about your career and how we should be treating people and listening to people and uh, engaging. And you know what? Good luck on your new adventure driving school bus. I hope I trained you to the best of my abilities to get out there and really be an awesome, safe driver on the roads for not only the public, but the kids you're going to be transporting. And like I said, thanks for coming on, man. That was great. Glad I did this. Thanks for the invite. Yep, definitely. We will catch you guys all later. Be safe and be kind to each other out there. See ya. (laughs) 